Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're doing well. We're in Exodus 6. Last week, Exodus 5, ended with some discouragement. God had told Moses, go tell the people, go tell Pharaoh. Pharaoh responded by doubling their workload and making it pretty much impossible. Um, the chapter ended with the people being discouraged, and it ended with Moses being discouraged and taking his complaint to God, <clears throat> crying out to him in prayer, and basically uh, saying um, in chapter 5, 22, why have you brought evil upon this people? Is this why you sent me ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name? He has brought evil upon the people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So Moses had received the commission. He had taken the message. The message had not been received. It had been rejected. And his own people's suffering had increased. So for all intents and purposes, Moses was a failure. Again, it's the second time he's tried to deliver his people, and it ended in failure. First time was as a young man when he killed the Egyptian and had to flee. So possibly he's thinking, here we go again. Another Pharaoh, another failure. Chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, now, that key word, now, Hebrew word, atah, now, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Now that in the NIV is an interpretation. The Hebrew text actually says, by a mighty hand, he will let them go. By a mighty hand, he will drive them out. There's double wordplay there. God's mighty hand is going to cause the, quote, mighty hand of Pharaoh to drive the people away. In other words, Pharaoh's sovereignty, his, his rule, his decree, by the end of this is going to be get them out of here. And that's going to come about through the mighty hand of God. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That phrase, I am Yahweh, I need Yahweh, that's going to be throughout this section. Look how many times you hear it in the next couple of chapters. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, God Sufficient, God of the Mountains, however it's translated. There's some discrepancies because we don't really know 100% what El Shaddai means. But I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived, where they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. There's a couple of things in this section. When God says, I appeared to them as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them as Yahweh, there's some discrepancy. And this is where some text critical scholars will jump in and say, ah, here we have different sources in the composition of this text. Because if you read Genesis, they do call him Yahweh. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do refer to God as Yahweh. So they knew his name was Yahweh in the text. So this must be a later edition, a different author, or something like that. There's a couple of ways scholars handle this passage because the Hebrew is a bit ambiguous. 
NIV translates it as a statement. God saying, I appeared to them as El Shaddai, God sufficient, God almighty, whatever you want to translate that. But I didn't make myself known to them as Yahweh. I am who I am. Because in Genesis, God never explained the meaning of I am who I am. And he never showed his presence with his people like he's about to do in the Exodus. So that's how scholars that take this as a statement, they translate it and they say, well, that's what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, they may have known me as Yahweh, but they really knew me as El Shaddai, the God Almighty. They didn't know me in the fullest sense as Yahweh, and I'm about to show you what Yahweh means. One way to handle it. The other way is this can also be translated as a question. God could be saying, did I not make myself known to them? Did I not appear to them as Yahweh? In other words, don't you know who I am, Moses? Didn't I already appear to your ancestors as I am? Haven't I always been with them? Now it's time for me to keep my promise. So it could be a question, and he, and he could be basically calling to mind his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So either way, it works. It's no big deal. There's no sign of multiple authors or any of that stuff. It's just God saying that now in, the, in this text, something is about to change. Something fundamental is about to happen that has not happened up until now. His presence is going to be in the lives of his people in, in a way that's fundamentally different than it was during the time of the patriarchs. We've moved into a new phase of salvation history. And so things are about to change. Like when, when you're watching a... And you guys probably don't watch UFC, but when you watch a UFC fight, the announcer's like, it's time! And he yells really loud. And then the guy's like, okay, that's, this is the it's time section. This is the Bruce Buffer section of the Bible, all right? So when God says, now, it's time, or if you're Michael Buffer, let's get ready to rumble. Either way, whatever you prefer. That's about to be what happens, because this is going to be a heavyweight match between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. Remember, that's the conflict in this section. So... Uh, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, verse 5, and I have remembered my covenant. When God remembers, like he remembered Noah in the middle of the Noah section, when God remembers something, it doesn't mean he was saying, oh, I forgot it until now. In the Bible, to remember means to specifically turn towards and act upon something that has been promised in the past. When it's used in this context. To remember means it's now time for me to act based on a previous promise that I have given, in this case, the covenant to Abraham. And what he's referring to in this section is Genesis 15. Those of you that were with us in Genesis 15, it should be highlighted in your Bibles, because I told you when we were doing Genesis 15, highlight this passage in your Bible, circle it, put asterisks. If you have it on your phone, do something that'll make it blank or whatever. Genesis 15 is the basis of the book of Exodus. Everything in this section, everything from now until chapter 20, basically, is, and through the book of Deuteronomy, actually, is a fulfillment of Genesis 15. So remember that, make a note of it, go back and read it, because that's what God is referencing. And that's what he's presupposing that his readers at this point already know. So Exodus, fulfillment of Genesis 15. Just keep that in mind. Therefore, verse 6, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. There's the phrase again. And he, then he makes seven promises. I am Yahweh. He makes seven promises. And then he ends it with I am Yahweh. It's an inclusio. It's a bookend. You start with something and you end with that same thing. And in the middle is the, the, 
the filling of the cookie, so to speak. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and one, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Two, I will free you from being slaves to them and will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Three, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So he makes these seven promises. I will bring you out from under the yoke. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land. I will give it to you as a possession. All of these promises are fulfillments of what he promised in Genesis 15 and the fulfillment of the ongoing covenant that he made with the seed of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham, the son, the children of Israel are God fulfilling his promise that he made to the descendants of Abraham. That through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that would come about through him giving them the land that he swore to give to their father Abraham. And remember, Abraham died not owning but a single grave in the promised land. Abraham died looking forward to the land that God would give his descendants. And he never saw it. Isaac never saw it. Jacob never saw it. Jacob died in Egypt and was carried back to Canaan. All of these generations, they never saw it. Now, 430 years later, God is keeping the promise. We saw last week, God's timetable and our timetable are often different. 430 years. America wasn't even a country 430 years ago. That's the amount of time that God is working on in this scale. Now it's going to be fulfilled and all of these promises God is going to come bring true for his people. So, verse 9, Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Uh, discouragement is a Hebrew phrase. It's, it's like, it, literally, it's shortness of spirit or, or broken spirit, some translations say, but uh, it could just mean impatience, whatever. He goes back to him the second time and he says, hey guys, God just appeared to me. He told me all these awesome things he's going to do. Well, what happened to the Israelites last time Moses showed up and told them all these awesome things God was going to do? Their workload got done. They got oppressed even more. So you can't really blame them this time for not thinking, hey, awesome, you got a word from the Lord. Let me bow down and listen to you. Here, tell us. It's going to be great. You know, it's, it's like they say, okay, you know, fool me once. Shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. They're not going to listen to him anymore because they're discouraged in their bondage. So verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. So the last, all right, you told the people, they don't believe me. They're not going to believe me until they see it. Go tell Pharaoh. Go tell him once again. And Moses, a little reticent, remembering last time, says to the Lord, if the Israelites will listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Since I speak with literally its uncircumcised lips, which is a funny word imagery, uh, but it means incapable. My, my speech, something's wrong. I didn't get it right last time, so it's got to be something wrong with the messenger. It's got to be something wrong with my, I'm not eloquent enough, I'm not 
you know, diplomatic enough, I said something wrong, whatever the case may be, why are the Israelites aren't going to listen to me, why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? So Moses is still at this point, he's even doubtful. He started this chapter taking his doubt to the Lord, God reaffirmed, but that didn't give Moses all the confidence in the world. Because you don't gain confidence really a lot of times until you actually see God working. And so Moses is, at this point, there's still some faltering on his part. There's still some reticence. He falls back on his old excuse. You know, I, I'm not a good speaker. Some people will say this is, you know, this shows that Moses had a speech impediment. He didn't. He speaks a lot in the book. He, he speaks the whole book of Deuteronomy. Moses, there's nothing wrong with Moses' speaking. Uh, that's Moses' excuse that he puts forward to try to get out of the, the calling. But there's nothing in the text that would say that he couldn't speak well. Um, so at this point, God says, go back. Moses says, but I'm not the guy. I'm, I'm, you know, uncircumcised lips. I'm not the one you need. And then at this point, it's like there's a commercial break. And the action completely pauses. And all of a sudden now, it goes into a genealogy. And this is the part that people that study the Bible hate. They hate genealogies because you're sitting in a small group. Okay, it's your turn to read out loud, and then you come to these names. You don't know what to say. You fumble through it. You don't know what's going on. And then you say, okay, let's skip the genealogy and get down to the action, which picks up again in chapter in verse 28. Everything from between verses verse 12 and 28. That's a that's an interlude. It's like a all right. We're going to pause right at the height of the tension. And now we're going to tell you who Moses and Aaron are. Who are these people that God is investing this mission? Who are these people that God is calling? And what are their credentials? What, who are they? If they're going to lead the Israelites, if they're going to be heirs to the promise given to Abraham, who are they? And how are they related to all of this Abrahamic promise? How are they related to the sons of Israel? who went down into Egypt. Are they really one of us? This Moses guy's been out in the desert for 40 years. He's got a Midianite wife and father-in-law and family. So he's kind of like, his family's half Israelite. They aren't even full blood. So why should we follow him? So all of these questions would be circulating in the mind of the reader or the listener. And so the text says, it pauses right in verse 13 and says, but the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. All right, so that's the end of the section in terms of the action. Then, verse 14, these are the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. Okay, so what's coming next? Uh, we're we're going to go down the line in Israel's sons. Remember, Israel had 12 sons. Where do Moses and Aaron fall within these 12? So Reuben, his clans. Then the sons of Simeon. Simeon was the secondborn of Israel. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. So even in, one, even in the second born clan of Israel, there's already some intermarriage. Canaanite woman. Uh, we've seen throughout the book, back in Genesis especially, what that meant in terms of God's people having always been a mixed ethnicity, never just pure bloodline. Um, so Reuben, Simeon. Third son, these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their records. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, and Levi lived 137 years. Now the genealogy is going to stop because we've come to the line that's important. Levi's line is important. 
The, priests, uh, the priesthood is going to come from Levi. Moses and Aaron are going to come from Levi. So we're at Levi. So now it gives his age because the genealogy now, instead of being segmented, like we talked about in Genesis, there's segmented genealogies where it gives you a lateral, like cousins and uncles. And then there's vertical genealogies. So now it's moving to vertical. So Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon, his firstborn, by clans were Libni and Shemi. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to their records. All right, so one of the clans of Levi now was this guy Amram. Amram married his father's sister, Jacobed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. So right here, now we see the line of Aaron and Moses through this guy Amram. And not only that, but there, this is, if this genealogy were being created, you wouldn't do this because there's already, he married his father's sister. He married his aunt. That's who he had his children with. That is going to be forbidden later when you get to Leviticus and the Holiness Code. The patriarchs and their families and their marriages and all of that stuff are not as neat and as tidy and as pristine as you would expect if you were constructing a family tree that was honorable and noble and good. No, it's, it's, it's cloudy, it's hazy, it's got some illicit relationships, it's got people in it like Rahab and people in it like Ruth and others who are somewhat questionable in either their ethnicity or their relationship or both. The genealogies in the Bible are very real in that sense. And so we get to Moses and Aaron's line, which is through this guy, Amram. And then, verse 21, the sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Eliphazan, and Sithri. 21, the sons of Izhar were Korah. That name, Korah, is important. The reason it's mentioned here is because later, Korah is going to play a big role in after the Exodus. So this is giving you, it doesn't just give you Aaron, Moses and Aaron's line, but it also foreshadows, introduces a figure who's going to become important later, and that's their cousin, Korah. So their equal cousin, Moses, Aaron, and then their cousin, Korah, both could claim to be heads of the families or heads of the clans. Well, that claim is going to be put to the test later after the Exodus, and God is going to intervene specifically to put down a rebellion. And the sons of Korah, the clans of Korah, are going to pay a price for their rebellion against Moses and Aaron in particular. So that's just an important name, and that's why it's there. It's not in there just haphazardly. That's why the genealogy, it's like it, it, it includes them as an aside, saying keep these people in mind because they're going to be important. Um, then it goes on and tells the Korah clans, Eliezer, these were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. Verse 26, it was this same Aaron and Moses, son of Amram, son of son of, son of, son of Levi, you know, born all the way back, the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions, by their sabaoth, which is armies, by their regiments, as we would say. That's a military term. And it's going to be ironic because in the Exodus, the armies of Pharaoh are going to be destroyed and the victorious people, the victorious, quote, army, is going to be this rabble of slaves ching out in their regiments. Even though they're not armies, they don't have weapons, they're slaves, they're mistreated. So it's this picturing them as an army, speaking of them as an army, when God is the one, Yahweh is the one who's going to do the battle. 
It was the same Moses and Aaron. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. So now, back to the story. Commercial break over. Now, in the day the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am Yahweh. So now we're back up to where we were before the genealogy. I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with uncircumcised lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? So we're, we're right back where we were in verse 12. It's, it's the exact same wording, only the order is switched around. So the chapter, it begins with Moses' discouragement, crying out to God. God comes. He reaffirms his promise. I am Yahweh. You, don't you remember the burning bush thing in Mount Sinai and all this stuff? I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I made promises to your ancestor Abraham, and you are the recipient of those promises because you're the one through whom I'm going to carry forward my plan. I'm going to do these seven things for you, and it's going to be, and this is, this is like verses 6 through 8 are kind of like the marching orders for the rest of the Old Testament. That's what God wants. That's his plan A for his people. If they will be obedient to him, these are the things that he'll do. This is what he wants to do for them. He wants to bring them out of Egypt. He's going to do that. He wants to take them to himself, make them into his people. He's going to do that at Mount Sinai, Exodus 20. He wants to take them into the land. He's going to do that, Joshua. And then wants them to be his people and him to be their God. That's the part where there will be a rub. Because immediately the people are going to start saying, Yeah, God, we want to worship you. But we also want to worship the other gods because worshiping the other gods is fun too because they help the rains come and they help the harvest be good. We get to have group sex if we worship the other gods because that's part of their worship services. Like that's some appealing evangelism, right? Like come to our church. Um, they, that is going to be the temptation. And over and over, God's going to say, no, you are my people. I am your God. If you will just trust me and trust me alone, not the gods of Egypt, not the gods of Canaan, not the gods of Assyria, not the gods of Babylon, not the modern gods of prosperity, not the gods of anything else. If you will trust me, I will take care of you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the plan. That's the goal. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. And that's the thing that Israel time and time again falls short of. And God sends prophet after prophet, calling them back to this covenant, calling them back to fulfill the destiny that he promised the seed of Abraham uh, would bring about. And time and time again, they rebel. And finally, God says, all right, I'm going to have to do something drastic. He takes them out of the land that he promises to give them as a possession. He says, I'm taking that back. He says in the prophets, I'm divorcing you is the language he uses. And he says, I'm going to wipe you out of the land. The land is going to vomit you out just like it vomited out the Canaanites when you took it. So God is going to apply the same judgment to Israel that he applies to all of these pagan nations at some point. And it's going to get so bad he's going to do that. But like a little, like when there's a big forest fire and it wipes out all the trees, but there's one little sapling that remains. That one little sapling, that shoot out of the stump or the root of Jesse, the root of David, the, whatever you want to call it, that one little tiny remnant is going to remain. And that remnant is going to consist of the faithful Israelites, the ones who didn't turn away. And it's going to come to a culmination in the first century in Judea to a guy and a girl named Mary and Joseph. And they're going to have a child, 
and his name's going to be Jesus because he'll save the people from their sins. And he is going to then sprout up. He's going to grow up like a shoot before the people. He's going to become the king of Israel in the truest cosmic sense of the word. He's going to defeat not just the earthly enemies, Babylon, Assyria, Rome. He's going to defeat the root source of those enemies, which is sin and Satan himself. And then he is going to open the doors of Israel to everyone in the world who wants to unite with the God of Israel, Jew or Gentile. And so he's going to graft into himself these olive branches from wild trees known as Gentiles while continuing to nourish those branches that were part of the root originally, which are the believing Jews, while breaking off the branches that reject him in unbelief, which are the unbelieving Jews. And that is going to be the tree the olive tree mystery that Paul talks about in Romans 11. That's going to be the body of God's people. That is going to be you and me and anybody else who is in union with Israel's Messiah through faith in the covenant God of Abraham. So when we're reading Exodus, we're not reading the history of the Jews. We are reading the history of the Jews, but we're reading the history of our people. Not in an ethnic sense, but in a spiritual sense. Paul say flat out in Galatians and Ephesians, if you are in Christ, you are a seed of Abraham. You are heirs to the promises. So this is our history, not co-opting it from the Jews. We're coming into it with them, the believing Jews. It's our people. It's our faith. And so when we read about what God does, then it sheds light on what he's doing now. And we filter it through the covenants. We, we look at it. This is him in the old covenant. This is him how he wanted it. We're going to see how it goes astray, but then through it all, God has a rescue plan to get things back on track, but to an even greater degree. And that's where we're living right now. That's where we find ourselves. So when we go through the Old Testament, even things like the genealogies, you know, we, we skip those. Why? Right? Because we want life application. We want a nice, easy devotional. Give me my verse for the day so I can go out and not cuss at the person who cuts me off in traffic. <laughs> but it's so much bigger than that. Yes, you shouldn't cuss at the person who cuts you on the traffic. Yes, you should have a nice day. You should be a blessing to those. But because you're the continuation of the promises God made to Abraham that he would bless the world. So you are fulfilling in your life walking with Jesus, trusting the God of Israel, serving him as his people and him your God. You're fulfilling the promises that God made all the way back in Genesis 15. That's why it's important to read these passages. That's why studying Exodus tells us who we are. It's continuation. It's not, well, you had Old Testament, and that was with the Jews, and that was their thing, and then you have the New Testament, and Jesus comes, and everything's different. Nonsense. That is the worst thing in the world in terms of Bible interpretation. Jesus is the fulfillment, the continuation of everything God started in the Old Testament. So those of us who are in him, this is what we have been brought into. As Christopher Wright says, we are, this is the mission of God. And so we, as the people of God, join in this mission. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you put yourself back in that time and place. The benefit you have now is you have a face to put on the promise. It's the face of a first century carpenter named Jesus. We have that face to put on it. They didn't have the face. They just had the promise. But it's putting the faith in the promise, living according to the promise, walking in relationship with the God of the promise that unites and constitutes the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. So it's one family, one tree, one root, one promise, one seed. And this is the beginnings now when they move in this chapter from the family of Israel 
to the nation of Israel, the Israelites. They're going to become no longer a loose-knit clan of slaves, but the people of God. And it will culminate in Exodus 20 when they receive the, 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 their Bill of Rights, which is the Ten Commandments. Um, two minutes early. That means you can come get seconds if you want to. <laughs> and we're done for the day. Have a great week, and we'll come back next week for Exodus 7. That's when things start picking up.